Hello friends, how's it going? My name is Matt Barr, you listen to the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast, the show where I try and uncover the most fascinating stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Big thanks for checking this episode out and I hope you enjoy it. I'm a week into my California road trip as I sit here recording this and I'm in Mammoth Mountain with a beer in hand after just enjoying one of the best powder days I've had in quite some time to be honest. Uh, We arrived just as a storm kicked in, woke up today to a a mountain plastered with snow, the sun peeking through the clouds and even better we made the right choice, always tricky in a new resort thanks to some tips from my new pal Justin Romano and properly scored it. Nice when that happens, eh? And the good news is it's snowing again. So tomorrow, they not open the uh, top of the mountain today. So tomorrow is looking pretty good. Um, but no better time then to record the intro for the second episode recorded on my California road trip, which is a really insightful conversation with the great Kelly Clark. Now, Kelly is without question one of the most influential snowboarders of all time and is the most successful competitive snowboarder in history, full stop. I mean, just look at the stats, 20 years, about 200 events, 137 podiums, 78 wins, six X Games medals, eight US Open halfpipe titles, two bronze and one gold medal, won over the course of five Olympic Games. It's an incredible record, which is probably never going to be surpassed. I think I'm probably quite safe saying that. And it's why Kelly's retirement, which she announced a few months ago, is uh, such a big moment in competitive snowboarding history. Now, I first met Kelly in February this year in Munich when we worked together on this Burton Hub Show event that took place over ISPO. I interviewed her and Donna Carpenter on stage in front of a live studio audience and uh, an online audience on Facebook. We got on straight away, I think it's fair to say, and we both really enjoyed working with each other on that, which was pretty stressful at times. But... um, after the show we agreed that I'd speak to her for the podcast when I was in California so that's what we did stopping off at her place near Folsom on the way through from San Francisco to Lake Tahoe and sitting down to cast a forensic eye over this incredible career I'm going to say it now this is a proper in-depth geek fest of a conversation about what it takes to succeed at the highest level in snowboarding yeah but really any sport like I said earlier Kelly's career spanned five Olympic cycles And it's really fascinating hearing a breakdown each phase of a career, the highs, the lows, the challenges, and above all, the constant inward-looking reinvention required to keep on sustaining such incredible success. It's really worth remembering, Kelly Clark started a career competing against Nicola Toast and ended a career competing against Chloe Kim. Now, if you think about the progression of snowboarding in that time and how Kelly managed to stay on top during that arc, it's an even more impressive achievement, really. And not least because... She had some proper lows, like I said, including two Olympic fourth places. And hearing Kelly talk about how she got over the first major disappointment of her career and basically rewired her approach to snowboarding so she could learn to enjoy the process of putting herself right outside her comfort zone, which is where she needed to be if she was going to keep progressing, is uh, very, very insightful. I think you're going to agree. The other thing that really comes across in this conversation is the responsibility Kelly felt towards the culture of snowboarding to continue to push the progression and also to pass on the experience and wisdom she'd accrued over her career to the next generation. So yeah, we got right into it in this one, doing some proper snowboard shop talking, as Kelly put it afterwards. Really grateful to Kelly for the hospitality and for participating in the show so wholeheartedly. I think you're going to enjoy this one. Here it is, my conversation with Kelly Clark intrinsic motivation enjoy kelly how you doing good 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 it's a few weeks since we saw each other saw each other in munich obviously quite a full-on experience that wasn't it that we did yeah, we did, we did a live show, didn't we? At the, at the we burn. did a live show. But I I hadn't done one of those before. It was pretty great. Me neither. Yeah. How did you find it? Um, I thought it was awesome. I I didn't know what people's response would be. Um, and it was cool when I picked up my phone after the show. I saw how much interaction there was and how relevant what we had to say <laughs> was. I you never really know until you kind of put it out there. But people were pretty stoked to get some insider info on both Donna Burton my retirement and all that yeah and how did you find the 
the kind of have you done many things in front of a live audience before um i do a fair amount of public speaking yeah I'm so sure. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable you seem comfortable on that side of whether it be a camera uh, yeah. a microphone um, or in front of a large group of people yeah uh, so you, you kind of enjoy it yeah I, I mean I, I don't thrive and come alive but I, I don't mind sharing my life with people yeah yeah I did a lot of preparation for that because I was a bit like I'd been thinking about doing live podcasts or just doing you know interviews in front of people for a while and then when Burton asked me to do it I was like okay well i should do it really you know it's a good little opportunity to kind of ch- get your feet wet with that yeah one. exactly like to because i was definitely worried about that um so it was i just did a lot of work and yeah you know you can only really learn by doing with those kind of things can't you yeah when i saw the uh the emails that you sent ahead of time with how well researched and planned out it was you could sense the terror i was like <laughs> oh this guy knows what he's doing it's going to be easy that's very kind that so. was that was uh, purely driven by fear yeah that, well that, hey it worked you're a total pro yeah it was good it's good so how was the rest of the trip see so because you were with donna like you said and you did a few like a few weeks around Europe, was it? Yeah, I did a few weeks. Uh, I started off in Munich at the Munich Hub Show. Uh, and then we went to Innsbruck, where Burton is headquartered in Europe. Yeah. Um, I did a day with the company. I got to speak there. And then we also did a similar show at the Innsbruck Hub yeah. at the Burton store there. Um, and then after that, I went over to Switzerland and I rode in locks for a few days. And you scored it. I scored big time. Yeah. How yeah. was that? It's awesome. You know, that was the first time I ever went to locks and I didn't drop into the half pipe. Yeah. So it was... Uh, how, how was that? It was foreign. It was a little bit different, yeah. but we got some incredible snow. So yeah. I was... Um, Easy decision. I was a happy camper. I knew there would be a day where I would no longer have to choose the pipe over riding pow. And yeah. that day has come. And, right. And uh, I put in a lot of time in the pipe and I loved every moment of it. And now it's a different different season for me yeah different life i guess and how how's that feeling is that and i guess when i when i ask that question i i mean quite specifically because i because you know could be any number of things like relief like almost like guilt you know like when you've when you've done something for so long and you go to somewhere where there's a pipe usually obviously for 20 years that's what you've been doing right so how how is how's that decision feeling um, to be honest, the, the best way to describe it is I feel really content yeah. with my decision. Um, I'm surprised at how little I miss it. Uh, I got to be at the U S open, you know, a few weeks back and I got to poach. I didn't have a bib on and I loved every moment of it. I love riding half pipe. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have ridden half pipe for 20 years if I didn't like absolutely enjoy it. But I don't miss the stress. I don't miss the intensity. I don't miss trying to keep up with the progression, trying to lead the progression, trying to push myself to the edge of my ability every day. Yeah. I don't miss that. Which is obviously a hallmark of your career, though. Yeah. I love doing backside airs. I love doing 540s. I love doing 720s. I I don't have to do 1080s and giant cab spins and put it all together perfect anymore which is that must feel quite nice which is very (laughs) nice you know i'll sign me up for the 540 any day and the right to uh to sit back and go yeah you you guys can can carry on with that yeah i didn't i didn't expect to be so comfortable being close to an event like i was even at the u.s open so soon i was wondering if i would be emotional i was wondering if i would be regretting my decision feeling like i was missing out and i just i just don't i'm just really content was that feeling that you describe of understanding when it was time was that a big part of it because obviously you you have lived your career and your life at this really high level on on in so many different ways but you know if we're talking about the progression of snowboarding which you've been at the forefront of and has been a real hallmark of your career and it's something that you've obviously made a the primary focus of your career of your competitive career at what point did you kind of did this feeling start to to come along where you were like ah maybe this is different maybe it's time for me to think about looking at this in a different way was that was that recent or had it been something you'd been thinking about for a while I mean I think in four-year increments I can look back at my career and I can kind of section off um my personal growth as a snowboarder every four years I can check in at my kind of Olympic cycle and my Olympic journey yeah and see how much my snowboarding has progressed how much I've grown up as a person I mean 
my first Olympics, I was 18 years old. And my last Olympics, I was 34. So I essentially grew up, you know, measuring my life in four-year increments. And I always aspired to grow. That was success for me. And I always wanted to get better at snowboarding. And I think towards the end of my career, I realized it was harder and and harder to get better. It was harder and harder to make those gains. Um, And I... I really feel like I hit my potential. Um, and that was all I ever wanted to do. It wasn't about winning as many contests as I could. It wasn't about setting records. It wasn't about beating other people. It was about getting better at snowboarding. And I feel like over the last few years, I realized that I was getting closer and closer to my own ceiling. Sure. And um, I don't think a lot of athletes get to choose when they stop actively playing a role in the competitive aspects of their sport and i think a lot of people it's very rare i think i think in, a lot of, in all sports isn't it really? yeah i think a lot of people get pushed out yeah. because they can no longer keep up um a lot of people's bodies break down sure, yeah. and they can no longer do what they are requiring of their bodies and and so for me it, it was something that i i hoped i would be able to make that decision yeah i always hoped that i would be able to decide when i was wanted to be done and on your own terms on my own terms and i think because i was able to do that i don't miss it because it was a choice that i made that makes sense it wasn't a choice that was made for me yeah there's no unfinished sense of unfinished business yeah and so i think that's just made this transition much easier and i'm really grateful and i'm also really grateful that it wasn't a hard stop like snowboarding is so much more than just comp- competing for me. I-, I competed for so long because I loved it. I loved the idea that I could see what I built, that I could work really hard and then rise to the occasion. But competitions never defined my snowboarding for me. And and for me now, I still get to snowboard. It's still a huge part of my life. I still get to stand sideways every day. So for me, it's just... Um, it's just an evolution of my career. That chapter is done. Yeah. But I'm looking forward to, you know, what challenges lay ahead. You mentioned this idea that it's always been about progression rather than winning. Is that some? Is that something that you've always had? Did you always have that perspective from when you were younger? Because I've interviewed quite a few high-level athletes and for a few of them, it's almost like that realization came as they evolved through their riding career. And, you know, early on, maybe the drive to win was was a key component of what drove them to success yeah I mean I think progression and winning they kind of go arm in arm they kind of work hand in hand but I I found more fulfillment in pursuing progression than pursuing perfection yeah and so I had a lot of success at a young age you know I won the Olympics the U.S. Open and the X Games all in the same season when I was 18 years old. It's and good so, start. Yeah, that was, a, that was a good way to <laughs> kick it off, huh? Yeah. And um, I think I found through all that success that um, that success wasn't something that really motivated me, that wasn't really fulfilling. I, I really needed to grow and develop and change and push myself. And that's where the sustainability and the passion really stemmed from for me and so I would say in my early 20s after a fair amount of success I realized that I would rather focus on progressing and growing and developing as a rider than just trying to win things because I mean I had won everything at that point yeah and so I had to kind of go back it could be all downhill and understand why I wanted to do this and I've never found it very fulfilling to focus on like a destination and be defined by an achievement. Um, And I didn't want my snowboarding to be defined that way either. And so in light of that, focusing on the tricks and focusing on pushing myself really kept it interesting and exciting for me over 20 years. If if it was about winning things, you know, I always say I should have stopped a long time ago. I've had an incredibly successful snowboarding career, but it was just a long time ago it stopped being about that for me. Right, and which sounds like was one of the things that gave you the longevity almost yeah, exactly but there's a period leading up to this first season where you were 18 like you say so what was driving because that's such an incredible achievement even if you just take that those three wins in that first year something how, how old were you when you started riding and competing i started snowboarding when i was seven and then 
I quit skiing when I was about 10 and only snowboarded. Uh, and then I started competing when I was about 14. So you had a four-year period from when you started like applying yourself to that first season. I mean, that is, that's quite a, that's quite a journey, like quick journey, isn't it? So what, what do you remember what was driving you then? Because, you know, so you would have been 14 to 18. Obviously you were pushing yourself incredibly hard to go from from starting you know to get to that point did you remember what what the motivation was then um you know when I was 14 um snowboarding became an Olympic sport yeah when I started snowboarding you know there was no such thing as the X Games it wasn't an Olympic sport yeah you kind of perfectly like mirrored that path didn't you really yeah there there wasn't a lot of opportunities for women at that time to make it in pro snowboarding apart from competing and so all of a sudden these big events started happening like the olympics and the x games the x games even at that time was still a little bit kind of you know no one really knew what it would turn into but it just started showcasing our sport and i think when when snowboarding became an olympic sport i said this is a path that i can take that will allow me to be a professional athlete, professional so, snowboarder. So is that conscious? And so when I um, I recorded the, the 98 Olympics on a VHS tape and I watched it after school and I really had one of those moments where I was 14 and I said, this is what I want to do with my life. And, and so I, from that moment forward, I thought, okay, I've got four years. I'm going to be one year out of high school. This is perfect timing. I'm going to apply myself and see if I can make the U.S. Olympic team and when I was 15, the X Games came to my home resort. Because you're East Coast, right? Yeah, Mount Snow is where I grew up in Vermont. And um, I didn't qualify for the X Games, but they let me into that contest because I was like a local kid and I was a good story. Yeah. And I competed in board across, half pipe, slope style. Um, I got fourth in slope style, actually. And I remember my agents came and my longtime agents, who I'm still represented by today, I remember um, they came to my parents' restaurant and they said, hey, uh, what, uh, we see a lot of potential in you, Kelly. What what do you want to do with your snowboarding? And my agent still tells this story to this day. He says, yeah, you looked at me and you said, I plan on winning the Olympics. And so apparently I was a very confident 15-year-old who had <laughs> pretty, big aspirations. Pretty confident. Where I would just tell someone so plainly, this is my plan. So it was, it was... It was a plan. It was ingrained. It was a. It was a focus. It was a dream. It was. It was a way that um, I could be successful. Um, I. I never excelled in school. I didn't have a lot of other aspirations, and I thought this is the, kind of the only future that I can see for myself. And um, it's a lot of belief, though. I couldn't tie my own shoelaces at 15. <laughs> I know, right? You can't even drive a car at that point. You know, like that is a lot of belief. Where yeah. did that come from? Um, my, I mean, you know, your, your family will tell you, you know, dream big, you know, anything's possible. And I think I just believed it. I saw, you know, at that 98 Olympics, I saw someone from Vermont get on the podium. I saw Ross Powers you get on the podium big role model right for you you know like yeah. and, and i was just like this is totally possible like that guy did it he's from a small town in vermont i can do this and um you know heading into that first olympics it was a really like now or never sort of scenario for me because i mean you got to remember snowboarding wasn't really a thing like being a professional snowboarder like in the eyes of my parents that was not a sustainable future no it was still very much i mean just a just it wasn't really an option was it there was no. people that did it but especially competitively yeah in this way in this mainstream way this this kind of like you know serious career that you're talking about yeah and my, my dad is famously quoted and he regrets it calling it a fad <laughs> you know that's that's how people viewed snowboarding it that's was a fad. classic <laughs> and um basically how many times do you remind him of that oh he's just like <laughs> yeah he hears it and he knows it and he regrets it every time it gets reprinted That's in so some funny. article yeah um he's gonna listen to this like, oh, yeah of course i'll bring it up <laughs> one more time 20 years later yeah um and he he basically said you know you've got to go to university you've got to go to school that's what you do that's where your future is classic and, and i said how about this 
I will defer from college for one year. And if I can't prove to you that this is a sustainable future for me, I'll go back to school. Right. And so that was the winter of 2001, 2002. So that was your shot. And that was my one shot. And the very first thing I said to my dad in the stands after I won the Olympics, I said, does this mean I don't have to go to school? That's so funny. It wasn't a, can you believe it? Or I'm so excited. It was like, is this enough? Does this mean I get to keep living my dream? For me, it was do or die. Yeah. That was it. What did he say? He, he was just like, You're that's right, the question you're asking me right now. You got to be kidding me. Both my, my parents, tears running down their faces, you know. So, um, But that's the drive right there, though, isn't it? That's yeah. that's that's obviously the, the thing we're talking about. Because if you, that's a really telling story because in that moment, that's what you're saying to your dad. I can understand why they were like, oh, okay, you just won the Olympics. <laughs> yeah, because I'm thinking I've got to prove it. Yeah. It was a prove it year. And... Um, you know, snowboarding was all I ever wanted to do. And, and I knew this was my one shot. And so it, was it difficult? You know, we talked about Ross Powers. What, what other role models did you have that, that kind of showed you that you could do it? Were there any women riders that you, that you looked at at this time that kind of had a path that you aspired to follow? Um, you know, I really looked up to Anne-Malin Kongsgaard from Norway. It's hard to describe the evolution of women's snowboarding unless you can like flip back in your memory banks and remember what it was like but amplitude really wasn't a thing um nicola nicola toast was a huge inspiration to me i remember going to the the u.s open and watching it i, I grew up nine miles from where it was held in vermont yeah so i'd go as a spectator and she was doing back-to-back sevens and probably 96 97 and I, that I, was i'm going pretty big as well and going pretty big yeah she kind of set the bar she and changed the game really didn't she she really changed she the came game. along and basically up to a level really so it's, was, in, it's interesting to hear you say that as somebody that came afterwards because which is something else we'll probably talk about this idea of the different generations like showing what's possible because obviously you've experienced that with chloe and and, mm-hmm. and the girls coming up now but yeah i mean she really did have that role didn't she you know i i distinctly remember the back-to-back sevens and thinking women can do that yeah okay women can do that she made it possible yeah and she went big and she did things like she meant it. She didn't do things like halfway. She would grab her board and tweak the heck out of it. She's powerful, powerful snowboarder. I, I remember she showed up to a uh, European Open, I want to say like 2008. And she Still got killing it. And she made it into finals, I believe, or at least semifinals. And she was like doing grabs and i was just like this is how women need to be approaching snowboarding yeah like she's doing it how it needs to be done still and what a good example it is for people like intentionally grabbing your board not just like checking it off and being like touched my snowboard yeah did the trick it was like this is a trick i'm doing which was always the criticism as well wasn't it that you you kind of faced really you know Mm -hmm. being i mean i spoke to nicola the other week and we were talking about the whole um good for a girl you know ride like a man sort of thing you know there was judgment basically wasn't there Mm -hmm. you know that as as kind of crazy as that sounds these days but there was there was almost like a proving thing going on wasn't there really yeah you had to you had to do it you had to show it wasn't a nothing was given you had to prove it yeah and she did it for for the women i remember um at that time as well uh, Natasha Zurich. Yeah, she, I mean, another like Just really, really, really good snowboarder. And almost another name that these days probably doesn't get the credit really. We, we, I mean, at the time she did, obviously, at the time and for our generation, legend. Yeah. But, but you know. And heading into the uh, Salt Lake Games, actually, you know, I was the extreme underdog and Nicola and Natasha were the gold medal favorites. Yeah. Those were the two, along with Dorian Vidal, those were the girls that were going to be on the podium. Yeah. And both of them crashed out and didn't make finals. Yeah. And that was really the end of an era for both of those women. That was the end of an era for Nicola. Um, and I actually was messaging with her the other day and, and she, I screenshotted it because sometimes, I mean, you just never stop being a fan, you know? And she wrote and said, you know, I knew, when I saw you 2002, 2003, when I hung it up, that you were the future. That was where the sport was going. And it was my time. That's really to lovely. Hand it off. 
because it's the you know the thing that you saw in her when you were a kid she's seen in you like a few years later yeah you, that must make you proud though right i mean that's a really it's incredibly humbling it's incredibly yeah. honoring and you know it's those girls who set the example for you know how i want to how i wanted to step away from snowboarding knowing that women's snowboarding was alive and well yeah you know and i feel like you carry it you do your part you pioneer as long as you can and then you set people up to go further than you can that's the nature of sports and that's that's the nature of snowboarding that's the beauty of snowboarding and that's how it should be because you know we're better together and when we inspire and set other people up to be successful we're not the only ones who benefit the sport benefits yeah and i think that's what's so appealing about the sport so um those girls were a huge inspiration to me and um watching Anne malin go bigger than i'd ever seen any woman do she was the first girl to do a frontside 900 she broke down so many barriers um and she was really the one that i modeled my snowboarding after right style wise approach wise that i said this is what i want my snowboarding to look like that was who i kind of took from yeah and really said this is what i want that was your level yeah yeah your benchmark Mm -hmm. yeah so that was the first cycle that you referred to and at at this point presumably your dad's like all right you don't don't have to go back to college um and you've got a career Mm -hmm. you know because you know you're working with burton and you're going to your next i mean you did four more cycles basically four more olympics after that yeah so how how was and you've talked about the standards that you set and the progression you know so how was it getting yourself up every four years? Was that something that you relished, basically? The first the first go around after Salt Lake was really challenging for me. Um, you know, from when I was 18 to when I was 22. I think the pressure and the expectation of being the returning Olympic gold medalist really weighed heavy on me. I felt the the pressure to perform, the, the pressure to... Um, almost be like on the defense and defend people talk about it. how are you going to defend your gold medal you know and i've i've long since learned that's not a great way to approach well that's the psychology that's what yeah. i'm going to say that's a completely different psychology it's isn't it completely from different being approach. from being the, the like you said in the first games that you competed in the, the total underdog mm-hmm. nothing to lose no one knows who you are you yeah know, the, i would say being a rookie is really easy but sustained success is extremely difficult so did you have to learn how to approach it from that perspective I did, and I didn't learn it in time. I didn't learn it before 2006 came around. Um, And I just kind of, I didn't diligently work at my snowboarding. I just kind of thought, I'll just kind of cruise. I'll just kind of go with it. I'll just kind of see how it goes. And um, I found myself in the finals of that Olympics at the edge of my ability level, and I, I learned two really important lessons i learned that there's a big difference between being prepared and having potential yeah and i learned that the hard way i was i had all the potential in the world but i wasn't prepared for so, that games looking back so you just what you've not done literally not done the work i had not done the work right i was i had approached the contest at that time by thinking well it's a big event i should probably put down a big big trick right that's and, really interesting and i would only do tricks when i had to I would only do, uh, right back then, the big trick was a front nine. I would yeah. do front nines and finals only. I would never practice it. So this is almost another level of psychology, a, yeah, a way of approaching learning. it. Mm-hmm. Big learning lesson for me. Yeah. Um, Does it I sound was, that sustainable? No. No, and it's not fun. I was, And that's the other thing I was going to say. It doesn't sound fun. No, that's the thing. That's yeah. how a lot of people get burned out in contests, yeah. is they do things because they have to, not because they want to. Yeah, and, and that, that that's almost like it's a task, isn't it, mm-hmm. that you could learn to, to dread. Yeah, and I the other thing I learned was that I was at the edge of my ability level and I never wanted to be there again. Right. And I fell going for it in my final run. And I fell on my front nine last hit. Uh, I would have won won by a mile if if I had landed that front nine. I would have been the, you know, repeat Olympic gold medalist, hands down, best run we'd ever seen in women's snowboarding. Yeah. Till I fell and um I realized that I hadn't put in the work and that was like a, you know, throw the ball into the end zone and hope for the best. It wasn't Hail Mary. This is my plan. Yeah. I'm I came here to do this and I didn't enjoy it 
and it caused me great heartache. Well, from what I know about you, that doesn't sound very characteristic of you either. That's where I learned that lesson that I I didn't want to repeat and I shifted my approach from that point forward. I mean, it's a hard lesson, isn't it? And and quite a hard environment in which to learn it. Yeah, when you get fourth place at the Olympics, it's yeah, that's uh, utterly devastating. I've done sure. it twice. <laughs> yeah. Um, the second time around, it, it was much more palatable. Yeah. Um, but did that give you the, you know, this lesson and that feeling? Did that give you a fire? Very much so. I think um, it relieved that pressure of expectation. Um, you know, I had not lived up to the hype. I was not the repeat Olympic gold medalist. All that. But more so than anything, I just realized that how my approach was wrong. Yeah. And not only did I not perform well, but more importantly, I wasn't enjoying it. Yeah. And that's a red flag for me. Sure. When when point, you don't right? enjoy snowboarding, that's a red flag. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I went to my coach and I, I, my longtime friend, you know, Ricky Bauer, he was uh, on the U.S. team with me when I was in high school growing up and he had since retired and... You know, I said, hey, like, I've gotten as high as I can go doing what I'm doing. And if I don't build wider, I can never go higher. Um, And so I went back to the basics and I realized that I wanted to be within my ability level and I needed to raise my own standard of riding. Right. It's it's almost like a back to basics approach. And so I went back and I worked on my edging for about four years. Right. Into Vancouver, to be quite honest. And um, gave myself the foundation that I never put the time in to build. And there's something interesting that happens with women snowboarding where perhaps it'll change in the future, but with the evolution um, that I experienced, when women would, would learn a certain trick or have some sort of breakthrough with their snowboarding, and I, I believe this can happen in the men's field too, it, it puts them in a place where they say, this is enough to get me on the podium. Yeah. And all of a sudden enough becomes enough and you never put yourself in a position to continue learning and building out the fundamentals and the basics and a more well-rounded um, approach to your snowboarding where you you have enough tricks to make it. Yeah. But when will you ever get the time to go back and learn how yeah, to Yeah, right. Better? So it's almost like a new comfort zone, if you like, that becomes implicit. Yeah. And you need to recognize and surpass. And a lot of people get stuck in that point where they're like, oh, I can do a rodeo, I can do a McTwist, I can do a double cork, I can do a 1080, and that becomes their one trick that they're known for and is enough to get them on the podium. Right. But at that point, I had to go back and make sure that I could get every aspect of my riding to the level where it needed to be. One trick wasn't going to do it for me. That's really fascinating. So you were aware of it? I was very much aware of it. And you knew, and you were, this was a way of guarding against what is effectively complacency at mm-hmm. that level. It sounds ludicrous because it's such a high level of riding as it is. But yeah. essentially, that's what you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, and you just you just get out what you put in. And if you stop investing in your craft, whatever you do, whatever stage you're at, you're never going to get to grow. And at a high level, it's really hard to take a step back and be willing to risk because I had to learn to risk failing uh, over and over again to be able to create a new normal for myself. So I had to take risks to be able to grow and I had to take risks and do tricks that I was not confident in until I became confident in them. And I had to fail a bunch publicly in contest, crashing on front nines for a bunch of years until all of a sudden front nines were no longer hard. Yeah, I no longer did them because it was an X Games final or, or an Olympic year. You could just do them. I did them every day. Yeah. Every single day I went up, I said, cool, I'm doing nines. That's what I do. I don't do it because I have to. I do it because I want to. But it has to be internal. That's the thing. I think it's easy. Competition riders can be motivated by external things. And I learned after Torino, I needed to be internally motivated so I would enjoy it, so I could sustain it, and so I could grow. And the other word you've used quite a lot there is risk. And let's let's not forget that. Like, you've got a further layer to this which is presumably fear you know the the very fact that it 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 is frightening at points it's very challenging it's very emotionally challenging it's very mentally challenging was that something that you learned to deal with as well like as you went on because you're obviously talking about this quite dispassionately you know this approach at the from this remove but was that another element that you had to overcome to basically because you know like to to the, the journey to say like oh, I'm going to do frontside nine because I've got to, to then like get to the point where you, where you can just 
bang them out mm-hmm. is is a, is a very difficult one like you said it's, it involves a lot of work a lot of use the word like kind of public humiliation like all these things like presumably there's a huge psychological barrier to to overcome to even get there really yeah, i mean you can, once you can recognize it but to actually then enact it put is, yourself out there yeah. and fail a bunch publicly um you know you've got real pressures you've got um the physical aspects of it like certain tricks are scary and you can get pretty banged up yeah doing sure them. um that's one element of it you have your sponsors and your livelihood and if you start taking risks and failing it's hard to tell them to say don't worry i have a plan you know four years from now six years from now um this is going to be a really good idea but right now we're not going to see any podium results until that starts to happen um and you also have your own kind of identity stuff that comes up as well and your personal view and how you're viewed by your peers and your image and and all that um all that plays a role and you have to be willing to sacrifice all of that to build what you want to build because it's not going to look pretty at first it's not going to be fun at first and you have to get people that'll support you for the long haul because it's not a short-term gain sort of thing and if another woman came along and was like had a trick i couldn't do I couldn't react to it and say, I've got to just do this because someone else is doing it. You know, it was like, no, that's being externally motivated again. That's being reactionary. And I've got to stick to my plan. And that was really what it came down to communicating to my sponsors and to my coaches and, and people like, this is my plan. I'm not doing it for today or tomorrow. I'm doing it for four years from now. I know where my snowboarding needs to be. And doing what I'm doing isn't going to work, but I, I know how I can get there. Um, so it was a journey and, and you have to be okay, like not getting your significance and self-worth from your performance and a performance culture that we live in. It's so easy to get that um, sense of significance from how you do. And, you know, post 2006, I think that was pretty earth shaking for me. And I realized that um, I needed to learn to be comfortable in my skin, regardless of what place I ended up at the end of the day. Um, because you can be pretty threatened if you're motivated by feeling good about yourself, by how you perform. If you don't perform well, it's a real big rabbit hole to go down. That's a house of cards, isn't it? Yeah. You know, the moment that it doesn't, you don't succeed. If you, it's not, a, it's not an edifice that's going to stand up, is it? You know, basically you're going to you're leaving yourself open to to failure and and like you say also Mm self-esteem being attacked and and damaged and that stuff doesn't go away after you get out of high school (laughs) no right but you but that's the thing you're putting in in this arena that you're putting yourself in like all these things that we're talking about that most people let's face it don't really have to deal with in day-to-day life but Mm -hmm. what the the life you lived there's no hiding from that Mm -mm. you've got to learn to deal with it yeah sports have like a rubber meets the road type of scenario that presents itself and Every weekend in the winter, I chose to go out and see how I was really doing. And yeah. and I just really revealed the broken parts in me, the the places that needed more work, the places that um, I needed to grow in. Uh, everyone can recognize it. I think everyone listening to this is going to, it's going to understand what you're talking about obviously not at the level that you that you were at but everybody knows what failure feels like everybody knows what it feels like to to put themselves in a position where they've tried something and they've really put themselves out there and it's not worked mm-hmm. and it's humiliating mm-hmm. and to and to it stops a lot of people from achieving what they want to achieve basically because it's not easy to overcome that yeah and just like you you don't need to be defined by your success you don't need to be defined by your failure either it goes both ways yeah but not you know not easy for people i don't think no not easy and i can sit here and talk about it but but that's why it's fascinating yeah because you know to to hear to hear you talk about it as like from the realization that you needed to change it and to do the work and to get where you got to which kind of leads me to my next question so was there a what moment did you kind of realize it had worked or you'd realize that you had a new you know the work had, had led you to a new point where you could approach it differently I was the first one to make the Olympic team in 2010. Um, that was a good indication that I was, you know, on track, on track with yeah. where I wanted to be. But you know, where I actually really saw everything come to life was in um, 2011 when I landed a 1080 at the X Games. Um, I had gotten my snowboarding to a point where I didn't even need that trick to win it. I'd gotten my snowboarding to a point where. Um, my easy run was better than everyone's best. 
and I had built my own personal standard to an extremely high level that gave me the freedom to then progress yeah. in a way that ensured um, success in the competitions, but also progression. And so for me, I didn't want to sacrifice. I spent a lot of years sacrificing success for the sake of progression, and I built up to a place where, you know, I did I did that 1080 in the contest that day, didn't need it to win, and I went on to do it five more times that season. Yeah. Never once did I need the 1080 to win the contest. I had it won before I even tried it. And so for me, that was more, that was a bigger accomplishment than even doing the 10. It was the the way that I did it. Yeah. Because for me... Because you knew the context. I I knew that I was doing it for me. Yeah, you knew. I wasn't doing it for anybody else. Yes, I was doing it for women's snowboarding because that's important to me, but I wasn't doing it for a contest. And I think there's such an idea when you see contest riders, they're like, like dance, monkey, dance. Like they're just <laughs> doing it because it's, you know, it's contest day, get to it. Yeah, and exactly. I, well, that's, people see it and they don't... I mean, everybody knows there's work involved and everybody knows there's, there's training involved. But that's, again, not to repeat myself, but that's why this is really fascinating because... This is a real insight into the, you know, the the dimensions of this, and and even something like that. It's a really famous, you know, occasion in snowboarding that mm-hmm. you're talking about. You know, it's a real milestone in women's snowboarding. But it's it's a really fascinating insight because that's not immediately apparent. You know what you're talking about when you see it. You just you know not. To, it's like Kelly the ten, amazing, hooray. You know, but what you're talking about it it means so much more because the amount of work that's gone into it and, and the amount of change that it's taken for you to get there mm-hmm. is what's significant for you, right? Yeah, and I always wanted to to do things because I wanted to, not because I had to. Yeah. And I mean, I am the most classic contest rider you could find in competitive snowboarding. You know, my name is up there with them and and it's just got to be about more than just performing and I, I've learned to value the things that no one sees more than the things that everyone sees um it's those sort of concepts that helped me you know not only have a 20-year snowboard career that competing but actually enjoy it that's the thing I think I can't tell you how much I enjoyed my career now that is a huge accomplishment yes I've got incredible um credentials and statistics and records and accomplishments but the fact that I did something for 20 years and was challenged every day and enjoyed it and sustained that enjoyment is is probably well, like my favorite thing. You almost know, a bigger accomplishment. Almost a bigger accomplishment. I think, you know, a lot of people will tell you that, you know, you ask really high-level athletes and a lot of snowboarders, and it, I mean, it's not a hard question to answer. I think everybody would answer it this way, you know, like, why do you snowboard? And you're like, oh, I snowboard because it's fun yeah oh it's so fun why do you start snowboarding it's fun like oh what 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 keeps it interesting for you it's fun the classic that's great everybody says it you know but i can tell you every day it's not fun there's a lot of not fun days out there but every day you should enjoy yeah and there's a difference between having fun and enjoying something and um you have to get past the days that aren't fun and find the joy and the bigger picture and the joy in the process and the enjoyment in all of it that is beyond just the superficial highs and lows of performance competitive snowboarding you gotta find the depth to it mm-hmm. that's going to satisfy you on a real like you said earlier intrinsic intrinsic level basically mm-hmm. or else it won't be sustainable mm-hmm. so given all this that we're talking about and we're kind of talking about the cycles and the prog- and the mental progression and how and i did ask you really like was there a point that you that you kind of knew it might be time to to change it i might ask that question again because in this context you know was because you did another cycle obviously and at this point there's a new generation coming through in the same way that you were the new generation for the people that you looked up to so how did that feel when you started to see you mentioned earlier that almost it was a level of progression that you recognize you might not be able to match mm-hmm. so how did how how did you reconcile that i went through a stage in my career where my peers were starting to retire. Um, the people that I had snowboarded with for 10, 15 years, Gretchen Blyler, Tor Bright, Elena Height, Hannah Teeter, the girls that were really in my kind of generation yeah. were no longer there. And um, I had al- always had peers and those women were my peers. 
And all of a sudden I looked around and they weren't there anymore. And I realized that I was more of a mentor than a peer. And it was a role that I embraced. It was a role that I said, I remember what it was like to wait in line at the U.S. Open and get Barrett Christie's autograph. I remember what it was like to watch Nicola do back-to-back sevens and Shannon Dunn do better McTwists than any of the guys, you know? Um, and so I thought, I have an opportunity to, to contribute, and I I always wanted snowboarding to be better because I was a part of it. Yeah. And that mentor role I took very seriously, and I do take very seriously, and, and I looked at it as an opportunity. Um, snowboarding is always changing and evolving, and I believe records are meant to be broken. And I realized that there was women that I was snowboarding with that were going to be able to do things on a snowboard I would never be able to do. Um, but I could set them up to start where I finished. They wouldn't have to spend 20 years learning some of these concepts we've even just discussed. Yeah, right. In this that's, podcast. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's the knowledge. That's the, that's, that's, that's the stuff that makes it enjoyable. That's it's, a 20-year career yeah. that you've just described. You know, that's, that's what you've learned. So if you can... Yeah, if you can fill those gaps and help somebody get there yeah, earlier, and well, that's a gift. After after 2014, I was standing at the bottom of the pipe after the Olympics, and I won a bronze medal, and huge victory for me that day, overcoming some really difficult conditions. And I remember people were asking me, are you finally done? And I got asked it so many times. I was... 30 years old, my fourth Olympics. And they Still said, so young though, isn't it? And they said, yeah, right. <laughs> they said, well, like, what else do you have to accomplish? What else do you want to do? And I really had to ask myself, like, what, what else do I have left to accomplish? And I felt like at that point in 2014, I hadn't found my own personal ceiling progression wise. I was chasing down cab tens. I was dreaming of double corks. You know, I was thinking these are realistic tricks that yeah. I want to work on. You still you still felt, saw it as attainable yeah i felt like that was somewhere i could go yeah and i realized that i wasn't done contributing to the world around me that i could still help the women that i was competing with excel in their careers from a mentor side of things chloe ariel maddie all those women i knew were still at an age where uh i don't know if they'd say this or not but i felt like they still needed me around and during that next four-year cycle i was able to really contribute to all of those young women and and um from a life perspective from a mentor perspective from an inspiration perspective whatever it was i was able to be there with them um i had a major hip surgery in that four-year period um and i got back to 100 percent after that but that really sidelined me in my progression of my cab 10 and in double corks those two tricks were something that I had aspired to do, but I never was able to do. And by the end of that four-year cycle in 2018, I realized that those weren't going to be attainable for me. Right. So I thought, I've hit my potential. And I looked around and I said, oh, these girls are just fine without me. Yeah. So how'd that feel? Not achieving those? Yeah, to that point. That's the point yeah. that I'm getting you to, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like it's the, that's still like, okay, it's time to change. Yeah. So how, I mean, how, was, was, did you have you know regret or relief or pleasure or how how did you feel um i felt like i can look back at my career and i can say i made the most of my opportunities and i was super faithful and super diligent and invested a ton in going after those dreams and they were still out of reach so i don't feel like it was something i personally missed it was just not in the cards yeah and i'm okay with that yeah well, um, of, of course i mean yeah and so but that's always what what drove me as you can probably see it was always about the tricks yeah and once i realized i was done growing i thought well i'm, I'm done competing yeah yeah i'm not gonna sit here and i i realized um even even this year i went to um the x games they invited me for one last run and they did this incredible celebration of my career. Um, and it was a weekend I'll remember for the rest of my life. I mean, that moment for me was was the fairy tale ending I always wanted. Yeah. Um, and I hadn't actually been riding pipe heading into that. 
And I realized I hadn't been half pipe really since US Open, probably 10 months prior. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, I got to go to Colorado and find a half pipe and figure out how to do this. And everyone's going to be watching. <laughs> like, I'm like, this is probably the most stressful run of my career. Yeah. And I. I did a run of straight airs. I think I actually, you know, I guess I did a back five and a crippler five and I just did straight airs. It was really, really mellow run. And I got feedback after people were like, Kelly, you could still do this. Kelly, you could totally do this. You could compete. You could hang. You could probably still get on the podium. And um, I realized that there's a really big difference between execution and progression and half pipe snowboarding. Execution is a really big part of it. And I'm perhaps better at executing runs than most people on the planet and i i'll probably always be able to execute really 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 well that muscle memory's there i imagine it's it's just there but i realized the progression wasn't there yeah and that has always been the heartbeat of it for me and i was like i'm sure i could execute it but if i'm not going to progress if i'm done growing i'm done competing yeah and it was really like just because you can do something doesn't mean you should yeah and it really kind of made my decision that much more uh, peaceful. And like you say, you, it was a dis- decision on your own terms, which mm-hmm. which is a really lovely thing because, as you mentioned earlier, it's not something that everybody gets. And now you can embark upon the bald face years. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in, in snowboarding, so much more than executing. I think there's other sports that are about executing. Yeah. I mean, You I know, you can look at golf, you can look at... You know, a lot of sports that are just very technical and snowboarding is extremely technical. Yeah. But the essence of snowboarding is progression. And, and that's why it needs treating differently. And yeah. that's why, I mean, you know, we're almost talking about the clash between our culture, even on this competitive level in the mainstream culture, right? Because that's mm-hmm. something that the mainstream, I would say, still doesn't understand really. Yeah. About about what, what we do. And it's going to be fascinating seeing how it goes with surfing and skateboarding, for example. Yeah. Because... You know, what you're talking about, I mean, we're 20 years in, aren't we, Mm -hmm. basically? And they still don't really get that, I don't think, Mm -mm. you know, that that it is, the execution alone isn't the point. Mm -hmm. And that's why if you treat it like that, that's the, that's where the clash comes from, isn't it? The culture clash, basically, Mm -hmm. that they don't, they don't understand that. And I think that's where the clash comes between core snowboarding and competitive snowboarding. Yeah, completely. Because you're right. You're right. It's another culture clash, isn't Mm -hmm. it? Was that something that you found difficult? You know, you used the words earlier. I think you said like I'm, you know, the quintessential competitive snowboarder. Did you, did you feel that? Did you feel that tension between the core as you describe it and, and um, you know, your position? Yeah. I mean, I've never been cool. <laughs> I've never been core. I've never been that snowboarder. Um, but I was me. And I feel like snowboarding has a high value for authenticity. Completely. And that was... It's the currency. That's what validated me. That's what validated my career. That's what validated me with the core of snowboarding was because I tried to do it for the right reasons. Um, Whether that was perceived that way or not, that wasn't my my worry. It was simply, I I want to snowboard for the right reasons and I want to... I want snowboarding to be better because I was part of it. Yeah. And I think I, I can look back and say, yeah, most definitely those two things were achieved. And, um, but there's definitely always a tension between competitive snowboarding and core snowboarding and that expression. And I, I think part of me in the, in the values and the approach that I have to competition, I think that's part of why I stayed in it for so long as well, because I wanted to make sure that that approach was intact in the next generation. That was something for me, that was um, perhaps the most important aspect, the most important thing I could pass on. And I look at the girls now, and I don't think I've ever seen Chloe take a victory lap. You know, I don't think, you know, that's what shows you why people do it. I saw both Chloe and Maddie learned. Uh, double corks the year after the olympics they're progressing on their own terms i saw chloe uh, learn a front 12 the year the spring after she won olympic gold so those are the things that are important to make sure that competitive snowboarding and the the kind of essence of what i think personally what i think snowboarding should be about is intact yeah and i think that's part of why i stayed in it so long because i wanted to make sure that that 
wasn't going to disappear with my generation. Do you think it's easier for the girls coming up? This to do you think that the, the tension is that we're talking about is dispersing a little bit? I don't know if it's dispersing as much. I think it's a different beast. I think when I was starting, there was really no separation. I th- I feel like core and competition is further apart maybe than it's ever been because competition has been establishing itself for the last six Olympics. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I guess with, with slope style and big air coming in, it's really bringing in a lot of different aspects of the sport that maybe weren't there before when it was just half pipe riding. Um, so I just, I just think regardless of what people's opinions are, as long as people are doing it for the right reasons, snowboarding will be just fine. Yeah, I think so. So as somebody that, you know, obviously approaches it in this way, what are you looking forward to now? Cause the, you can do what you want, which is, must be a great feeling. Yeah, this has been um, an incredibly low-stress snowboard season for yeah, me. Yeah, that must be great. Yeah, you know, I keep getting these comments from people, and I don't know whether I should be offended <laughs> or excited, but they say, wow, you seem really relaxed. Wow, you seem really easygoing. And I'm like, wait, was I not easygoing before? <laughs> you know, everybody's uh, making these comments, like my family to my close friends are saying, wow, it's so fun and enjoyable to be around i i just can't describe how intense and how difficult it was to compete at a high level yeah, while consuming and so i am enjoying it and i'm so grateful that i can transition and get to continue to be part of the sport and continue to be um be busy and i've just given my life to the sport i couldn't imagine not being there you know People are like, you're going to go to the U.S. Open and not compete? And I'm like, I've been at the U.S. Open the last 20-something years. If I wasn't there, it'd probably be harder than yeah. being there. You know, it's all I've ever known. And so I'm I'm incredibly grateful, and I've gotten more pow days in this year than, than I have in a long time. I'm going my second trip to Baldface this year and a few uh, next a, week. So That's a sentence I'd like to say at one point in my life. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, who gets to do that, right? So yeah. all is well in my world. Do you have any ambitions left with it, with snowboarding generally? You know, when I started, it was, we just did everything. We rode big mountain stuff. We rode rails, we rode park, pipe, whatever. And so I've done a fair share of big mountain stuff. um, And I'm looking forward to getting to do more of that. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily know what that looks like, but I do know I'm happiest when I'm progressing and growing and challenged. Yeah, that's kind of why I asked the question, really, because I can't imagine that's going to stop yeah well that's something you can turn off you know you yeah can, can kind of say like oh yeah, i'm just gonna go ride powder but you know from what you've said that i'm some, not wired that way there's something at work there isn't there there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a motor going mm-hmm. on that will that will lead you to new challenges and ambitions and, and progressions basically yeah so i look forward to seeing where my snowboarding takes me and how i grow and develop in big mountain side of things yeah any trips lined up for that kind of that side um, of things you know, this year was really about transition. Yeah. And I didn't know what to expect and how that would go. And so next year, I'm looking to really apply myself in that way and kind of be strategic and plan out my winter in a, in a way that gives me the opportunity to grow and be challenged. Yeah. Um, right now, it's just kind of been fun. High fives, pow days, bring your snorkel, which yeah. is great. Um, but, you know, next year, we'll kind of see if I can line something up that will allow me to kind of showcase that and push myself a bit more yeah and you also got to kind of pay tribute to the you know you've one of the things you've talked about today is the the cross-generational side to women's snowboarding you know the people that inspired you the people that you've mentored and you you got to kind of the first trip to Baldface. you you got to kind of nod to that didn't you with Amalyn and Shannon right you went with and, and Chloe yeah that was a dream trip I remember watching Shannon turn just ripping pow turns and I remember thinking I think I had that poster on my wall when I was a kid it was so nostalgic and um it was just such a sweet moment for me and I got to say hey Shannon this is Chloe and hey Anne this is Chloe this is what this person did for the sport and this is you know what you're gonna do for the sport and I got to link up the generations you know and it's where snowboarding's been it's it's where it is and and with chloe it's where it's going yeah and so it's gonna be 
fascinating seeing what she does isn't it to kind of connect those dots was was awesome and that was an incredible trip and i'm looking forward to uh more of that in the future yeah so final question given what we've we've talked about it's probably quite a hard one but um when you look back on you know this whole story is there a moment that that you're proudest of um you know the olympics for me like i mentioned are huge benchmarks salt lake winning my home soil first gold medal for the u.s was one of the highlights of my life be one of the biggest moments anyone ever has um but i think putting down my best runs at my fifth olympics at 34 years old ending up in fourth place missing the podium by one and realizing that what i said i believed i actually believed it was real was real yeah i think that's probably one of my greatest achievements yeah knowing i can have the courage to to dream the biggest dream to come up short and be okay yeah and realize that the things that i said i had a value for and the things that i was motivated by were actually true yeah that 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 was the point that was the point and it wasn't it wasn't just as hard as that experience was when i was asked at the bottom of the pipe that day you know what went wrong why did you end up in fourth place you know I, i had every opportunity to to go a different direction to come up with an excuse to cut down the people I was snowboarding with to have a conversation about subjective judging and snowboarding. And, and I was able to sit there and honor the people that I was snowboarding with and to congratulate them and mean it Yeah, and to be okay with an unjust situation and, and say, wow, I'm not defined by my performance. That yeah. was probably in my performance career, realizing I wasn't defined by it. You can only find out through uh, coming up short and realizing that you're okay. I, in an odd way, I feel like that's probably like one of the greatest achievements of my career because even after all I've done, I still was not motivated by winning. And for me, um, navigating a performance culture but not being defined by it is probably the greatest achievement I've ever done and something that I'll take beyond snowboarding and something that I'll take to other people and be able to inspire them with, I think, beyond just getting to drop in and spend 30 seconds in a half pipe and see how it goes. Well, thanks so much for sharing that. That was I really enjoyed that. Yeah, thank you. It's great to have a conversation. It's fun to revisit all the all the journey and all the process and i look forward to the future so i appreciate it yeah thank you kelly so there you go that was my conversation with kelly and i told you it was a geek fest perhaps unparalleled in the history of the podcast which is really saying something i'm so privileged to to be able to have these conversations and to really strip back the layers on some of our culture's greatest achievements and this was definitely one such occasion. Hope you found it as insightful as I did. And I hope you'll agree that Kelly really has earned the right to those trips to Baldface and that powder and backside air-filled retirement. So that's it for this episode. As I said at the top, currently mammoth, being extremely well looked after by my new friends, Lauren and Justin. And the good news is, like I say, it looks like we're on for round two tomorrow. Incidentally, I'm documenting this whole trip on my Instagram page under the hashtag ls california and saving everything as a story highlight on my instagram page we look sideways got a few more days in mammoth then heading down the road to ventura for a couple of days where i'll be meeting my old mucker owen tozer who's joining me for the last leg of the trip when we'll be making our way south to san diego via huntington beach and carlsbad i figure by the time this one comes out i'll have about a week left so you've still got plenty of time to recommend guests if you've got any in mind i've already got some top guests lined up some you'll have heard of some you won't have I'm also personally excited to be finally interviewing two people I've wanted to meet and chat to for at least a decade. So yeah, looking forward to that one. 
that's it for this week. I mean, incidentally, I'm getting more messages from people asking how they can support the show with a couple of people even offering to pay their own money unprompted via Patreon. How good's that? A eh? thing is, I still haven't got around to setting up the Patreon account. So if you do want to support the show, there's a few ways of doing it. You can follow me on social media. Um, you can find all my social handles at my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com. You can share your favorite episode on social media. You can leave me a review on iTunes. Or even better, you can go to my website, find the shop tab, buy some merch and send a picture to me of you wearing said merch so I can uh, spread the love and hopefully encourage more people to do the same. Big thanks again to my friends at Visit California and Hertz for their support on this trip and generally for making the California episodes happen. Much appreciated. All right, I'll be back with the next one soon. Nice one.